Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We live in a divided country. We all know that. But we've always lived in a divided country. What makes the past several years so uniquely frustrating is how every story, every major event, immediately collapses into another partisan squabble. Everything, and I mean everything, is polarizing. They're pushing this woke liberal agenda and they're deciding who can... Today, Bud Light facing some backlash over its partnership with a trans influencer. An Obama-appointed judge in Missouri is ordering teachers to pay over $300,000 in legal fees for going against the school district's mandatory anti-racism training. Myself and Representative Jones were expelled because we were resisting the status quo that says the NRA deserves to write legislation in Tennessee. It's hard to hear headlines like that and believe anything like a middle ground exists. And for that reason, it's hard to believe that it's still possible to persuade people on the other side of an issue. But is that true? Is persuasion really not possible anymore in our politics? I'm Sean Inley, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Anand Girdardis. He's a political analyst for MSNBC and the author of several books, including his latest, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Anand has always been an interesting writer for me. His last book, Winners Take All, was a critique of plutocracy and how the rich undermine our democratic system. But that book was a policy book it was about the path to structural change. This book is about something more fundamental than policy. It's about how we, as democratic citizens, move people to our side of an issue, which is what you have to do before you can pass good policy. Because persuasion is so important and because it seems so hard right now, I invited Anand onto the show to talk about what he learned and why he still believes in American democracy. This idea of democracy is a very small duration of the human story. For most of the human story, and in most places, it was felt that when group decisions kind of landed in the community inbox, it was better for one guy, and it was almost always a guy, to just decide for everyone, or some council of guys or whatever. And the reason it was felt this was, you know, well, partly some of those guys just use a lot of violence and bloodshed to make sure that that's what people thought. But also, there was a kind of belief that group decisions were, you know, too hard for groups to make. That these decisions about whether you kind of drain the lake or or not, whether you let those people into the village or not, whether we finance schools or nursing homes first, these kind of decisions that groups, communities have to make, too hard, too hard for all of us to decide them together. And then in the last two, three hundred years, this extraordinary revolution took place where 
country after country started switching to this system of let's choose the future through 24-7, 365 roiling conversations among all of us. And surely one of the great surprises of human history, one of the great plot twists, is that this shift to group decisions by everybody arguing all the time actually made for the most successful societies in the history of the world, right? Like made better decisions, made faster, more efficient growth. Like it just, it's, it's an incredible, incredible story, the story of democracy. And at the heart of that story, the whole thing that makes it go is the notion that if you want to change things, something about your community, you endeavor to change other people's minds. That's the whole ball game. The far right believes in persuasion. The far right doesn't need my lectures on the importance of persuasion. They totally believe in persuasion. What is Fox News? Fox News is a giant radicalization engine. Fox News is not only preaching to the choir. Fox News is trying to make a new right-winger every second. It is trying to carry you from some heart-rending story of some white girl killed by some undocumented person, trying to carry you from that story that requires you having no particular ideology or politics, take you from the emotional lure of that story all the way up and through its radicalization funnel into a full-blown kind of fascist ideology. And the right from Fox News to its politicians to others has a full, full funnel to take you there. And the political left at the same time has kind of been turning its back on the idea that people are persuadable. And you, you hear people say, ah, they're a death cult. You know, don't bother with them. Ah, they're anti-vaxxers. Don't bother with them. Ah, white people are, you know, too committed to their privilege to ever change. Men are too committed to patriarchy to ever change. These kinds of poses and shrugs, I understand the sentiment they come from. I often feel frustrated about the same things. But I think they are the end of democracy. When we start believing that people can't change, can't be made better, can't be presented with new realities and, and actually evolve, we are giving up and we are asking for the kings of yore to come back. Emotions are a big part of the story you're telling in this book, and they should be because we're emotional creatures. And like, to me, I've always felt like the Democrats are in the argument business and Republicans are in the storytelling business, right? Like the Dems are like the fact party and the GOP is the truth party. <laughs> and that is a distinction that sounds meaningless, but I, I don't think it is. I think that's, to me, absolutely right. And... First of all, I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, facts are good. It's good to be the fact people in a certain way, right? And second of all, in a time when the other side is going really off the deep end of crazy into a post-factual politics and a, a kind of conspiracy theory as worldview politics, you can understand a certain amount of pressure on the left to say, okay, we're the fact people now. Like, we're the adults left in the room. Like, let's adult. The importance of being responsible on this score goes up, not down. And yet, and yet, at the end of the day, I think there's a kind of wonkiness that has overtaken the Democratic Party as, frankly, big labor has fallen out of the Democratic Party as a, you know, core constituency and source of leaders and source of talent. Like a lot of people in the Democratic Party leadership who, who basically like came up through unions. That's just not the profile anymore. That's not the path anymore. You have a bunch of lawyers, people who worked in law firms, a lot of people who went to you know Harvard or Yale, which is fine. These are smart people. But these are people probably least likely in our society to get that things are visceral, things are guttural, things are emotional. And so there's this kind of disconnect where in the desire to be the fact people, and the pointy-headed people, and the responsible people, and the sober people, we just leave all this terrain open. Take what is happening with the weaponization of trans kids. I'll tell you the way I read this from a kind of emotional and psychological lens. There's this famous phrase, anger is what pain looks like in public. So you have these militant, leaders and organized movements, which are quite small in size, right? They're very extreme factions 
pushing this anti-trans politics, anti-gender affirming care, anti-trans stuff for adults, all kinds of things all around the country. I would believe that's a relatively small organized faction that is doing this in a sustained and extremist and kind of knowledgeable way. And then what makes it plausible is that you have a bunch of other people who are kind of casually glomming on to this politics or being receptive to it, who give that extremist politics the kind of purchase it needs to have any life. And where I think we fail as a kind of pro-democracy, pro-human rights movement is to say that second larger group of people who are not like diehard anti-trans people, who frankly are people who don't know a lot about what trans means or is or what's actually going on, who are relatively ignorant about these issues because these issues are relatively new in mainstream public discussion. We don't understand that for that second bigger group, what is going on is fundamentally an emotional process, right? And the way I would read it is, I don't think it's about trans kids primarily. I think it becomes about trans kids. I think it is about very universal human emotions, about frankly feeling the loss of control over your children as they reach a certain age. That's just universal. And that makes all parents sad. That's the fundamental experience of being a parent. I just think that core thing of, your kid's 14, you're not just afraid of them becoming trans, you're afraid of them becoming a person. You're afraid of them becoming a person who has thoughts about you that are not thoughts you want them to think. You're afraid of them having, you know, maybe getting therapy and having a story of your family that is maybe not the official story you want them to believe. You're afraid of your kids growing up. And the right gets that and gets in there and weaponizes that emotion that a lot of people have and animates it with this very specific fear that your kids are being groomed and this and that. And, and I think that sophistication is, is what we are not seeing. The right is often trying to stimulate emotional responses like fear or often disgust because they're mobilizing people against something more often than not. I'm not saying that's all conservatism is or can be, but we all know that's a big piece of it at the moment. Whereas the left and Democrats are often trying to make, as we were saying, arguments for policy or whatever. And those are just different projects. And to the extent that we are emotional creatures, I think the right just has a sort of structural competitive advantage, just like on the pure politics of it. Yes, I sort of agree with that, but I also want to challenge it a little bit. Because I think this is something we often say to ourselves, and I, I often hear people who encounter what I'm arguing and the persuaders respond with, well, of course, it's easy to make people afraid of immigrants or make people afraid of, you know, their kids becoming kind of unfamiliar to them or any of these things. And it's, it's harder to do what we have to do. It's harder to advocate for democracy. It's harder to advocate for a multiracial society. However, I think we sometimes are too easy on ourselves instead of being hard on ourselves. The reality is that the, the project of building a multiracial democracy is a thrilling project. We are trying to do something very cool in the world, which is build societies of people drawn from every corner of this world who share values and hope. I don't know that it's particularly difficult to make that exciting and galvanizing to people. I just don't think we've done a very good job of it. And I think the people who are countering American fascism are doing so often with weak sauce, are doing so with bland policy, or doing it with half-hearted rebuttals of disinformation, or with just kind of trying to label the other side extremist, without offering a thrilling picture of what we're trying to do. And that kind of hope also plays to emotion. The idea of solidarity also plays to emotion. The idea of you know taking your country back from incredibly powerful people who have thwarted your children's dreams and your and our collective future, there's no reason that can't also be an emotive, galvanizing politics. I just think we need a class of politicians on the pro-democracy movement who know what they're doing. Obama was so good at appropriating patriotism as a progressive value. The politics of the moment today are just so different than they were in 2008. And I'm sure that's that carries its own challenges. But there still is a hell of a story to tell here from the left, right? America is still just like the most radically successful experiment in multi-ethnic democracy in human history, right? There's a great 
story to tell about that. I deeply, deeply agree with that. I, I think both the frames of freedom and of patriotism are frames that we idiotically concede to the right. We have allowed a very narrow movement to claim these concepts. And somehow the freedom to breathe on a healthy planet is not called freedom. Somehow Medicare for all is not called freedom care, which is what it actually would be and would do in people's lives. Somehow the counter to the assault on democracy from the right is not often enough called the freedom to vote, the freedom to choose our leaders. And it's not just a rhetorical point. Amanda Marcotte, writer, said not long ago, talking about book bans and abortion crackdowns, that if Democrats cannot frame these contests over book bans and abortion and other things as, like, we're the people who want you to be free to curl up with a good book and free to get laid without fear. It's the fun party, not the, not the scold party. Correct. And if we can't win on the basis of fighting for those freedoms, you know, we don't deserve to. And I think what you just said, parenthetically, is really important fun versus scold. I think because the left has had to respond to so much outrageous madness in recent years, and it has had to, and that's not its fault, it has gotten into a mode of tediousness sometimes and of scolding, and it's a vibe that is perceived from the outside. It doesn't in a way matter whether it is true. I think I think one could have arguments about whether it's in fact, you know, tedious or scoldy at all times or whether that's agenda perception. But I think it's a perception that is out there and it has come at the expense of seeming like the more fun side. I think you're exactly right. It has created this weird space for the fascist right to claim to be the fun side. And I do think we have to blunt that phony advantage. Is the future of democracy dependent on who grabs the most attention? We'll discuss this after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You could certainly make the case that the biggest cleavage in American politics at this moment is liberal democracy, right? One party is for it. The other isn't. <laughs> it, just, it just isn't. And the Democrats, as you say, are on the pro-liberal democracy side, and they are failing to convince enough people for whatever reason or reasons. And the people you report on in this book give you collectively something like a systematic theory of persuasion right, when it comes to making the case for American liberal democracy. And I don't want to ask you to, to you know, lay out a bunch of bullet points or whatever, but I do think it's worth summing up because it, it helps paint a three-dimensional picture for people listening. Once you accept that there's a kind of pretty existential conflict between a pro-democracy side and an anti-democracy side, the most urgent question in politics becomes how does the pro-democracy movement win? And I think the 
Look, I think the argument I've made that feels a little uncomfortable, perhaps, is that I don't think the pro-democracy movement is in danger simply because the other side is not playing fair. I think the pro-democracy side is also in danger because it is not playing well. And while that feels like a harsh truth, perhaps, I think it's an optimistic truth because it means you could play better. You know, I think there is a politics of attention and understanding how attention works in the 21st century that is crucial given the realities of social media, decentralized media, the decline of old gatekeepers, et cetera, et cetera. Walter Cronkite is dead and has been replaced by TikTok, right? And so in that world, how do you command attention to get things done? The right is very good at this. It's very good at a politics of attention. It just unfortunately uses the attention to you know, spread dystopian lies, but it's very good at understanding how to get people to talk about your thing in a crowded information landscape. On the left, there's really a lack of skill at this, and I think a lack of will at this, and exceptions like AOC prove the rule. She's very good. She can get the country to talk about anything for a day. I think another crucial thing is meeting people where they are. You know, I, I spoke to a lot of organizers and former organizers for this book, Now in Elected Politics, and the organizing mentality is to say, you don't start with what you're selling, you start with what they're buying, right? You, you start with, you know, what, what are the pain points in your life? What is annoying you? You don't start with, you know, issues that might be three miles ahead of where someone's political consciousness is. You really back into the political conscious people have and, and try to bring them forward and organize them into a new understanding. And, and the organizer's mentality, I think, is that you know, on issues like trans rights or gay rights or status of women or any a number of immigrants, that some number of people are really conscious, deep haters of other people who are deeply steeped in a hateful worldview. But a lot more people have simply not yet been organized into a better way of looking at the world. They have a default, casual acceptance or old view of an issue that no one has really actually bothered to fiddle with. And the whole purpose of kind of politics, uh, a certain kind of politics, is consciousness raising and education. And you can't turn your nose up at that work. I would also say we do not have in the pro-democracy movement really an IRL infrastructure. The Democratic Party is an IRL absence. It's not a physical, corporeal presence in American life. I know that sounds weird, there are a lot of fascinating people that you interview in, in the book, and one of them is this woman named Loretta Ross, and you, and you can say who she is, but you quote her as saying something that's really important, and I just want to say it, and, and you can expound on it however you want. But she says, and now I'm quoting, I think the 90 percenters spend too much time trying to turn people into 100 percenters, which is totally unnecessary. This is fucking spot on. Tell me what she's getting at here. So Loretta Ross is one of the many kind of organizers, activists, thinkers I write about in the book. And, you know, like I think most of them, she is a woman of color. This is in some ways, this is a book largely about women of color organizers who are overturning, I think, a lot of older theories of how we do persuasion in a polarized time and are kind of rejecting a lot of the kind of 90s politics of triangulation as the way you do persuasion, dilution as the way you do persuasion, and who are trying to think about in their own ways, how do you stand bravely for big things and persuade, as opposed to persuading by not standing for big things. And so Loretta's one of them. And she, in a way, she's talking about the values of coalition and what it takes to actually have coalition. And she is a black woman in her 70s, serious, pioneering, radical leftist activist, right? No one can call Loretta Ross soft on anything. But she is saying, look, as a movement on the left, we are often better at being at each other's throats than being at each other's backs. And it undermines our ability to build power. And so she has this scheme that she calls circles of influence. And one of the examples is you have these people who are your 90 percenters, right? Your 90 percenters are people who basically agree with you on every fundamental issue. You wouldn't have substantive disagreements with them, but you maybe attack the problem in a different way. So you attack the problem by 
hosting a podcast and interviewing people. And I attacked the problem by doing field organizing in Arizona. But we share a way of looking at the world. And what happens too often is you and I will turn on each other in this hypothetical example and say, you know, how can you just sit there in a podcast studio when I'm here knocking on doors in Arizona? Or you will say, how can you just, you know, work in one little corner of the country and when I'm here speaking to a broad audience? Or it might get more specific where you say, you know, look, to do door knocking in Arizona, I'm probably going to have to not say everything I believe. I'm probably not, like speaking truth to power is probably not a great idea on the doors in Arizona. I'm going to have to bite my tongue a little bit. I'm going to have to, you know, hear some white supremacist bile and roll with it a little bit so I can do the work I do. And you might say to me, Anand, I can't believe, you know, I, I thought you were someone with convictions, but I saw this video of you doing canvassing in Arizona and you just, you don't call out any of that bullshit. What's going on? That is a prime example of what Loretta Ross calls people turning on their own 90 percenters. Whereas we should recognize, oh, my friend is doing canvassing in Arizona. I trust his values. I know his values. And I, I figure, yeah, he probably does have to bite his tongue to do that work in a way that I don't as a podcast host. And I get that. I have the maturity to understand that people who share values with me may pursue change in a different way. I think that framework is something that I found incredibly helpful in reporting the book. It is. It speaks to another insight of yours, which is that there's a superficial reading maybe of the book if people don't get past the cover, which is something like, oh, this is some kind of peon to centrism or, you know, milk toast moderation. And it isn't that at all. Like you said, the people you're talking to, it's an attack on that. Like people you're dealing with here are not milk toast moderates, right? These are people with strong political commitments that are not in like some whatever imaginary median, you know, position of American politics, right? I mean, why do you think that is something that people confuse so often? That in order to persuade, you have to run to some imaginary median point. Yeah, I think the old theory that I'm in a way trying to overturn, I would call persuasion by dilution. And you think about Bill Clinton cutting down welfare to show that he, that he was as hardcore as his Republican adversaries, or Barack Obama continuing a lot of the Bush national security policies so that he would not be able to be accused of a kind of liberal weakness on those issues. This has often been the hope. And it's based on this notion that there are these people in the middle who think you're a kind of communist, but if you assuage them by moving towards them, they will stop thinking you're a communist and they will embrace you and vote for you. As you know, those people often end up still thinking you're a communist. You move towards them, you know, you keep Guantanamo open, you you keep bombing people with drones, you gut welfare, you declare the era of big government over, you allow drilling in Alaska, and the right still calls you a communist. And what a lot of the organizers I'm writing about argue is that this is based on a mistaken notion that the moderates are like people standing in the center, wanting you to come to the center so you can be near them. The reframe that this book engages in is to say, moderates are people who are short of a worldview, right? A lot of people listening to your podcast probably have a pretty well-developed worldview. They know how they think about a bunch of things. And when new things like questions of trans-affirming care for kids comes along, they have enough of a worldview algorithm to tell them how to think about the new thing also. But most voters are not like this, right? They are busy. They're working multiple jobs. They're not thinking about these issues often or ever. And they basically are casually in the market for some way of making sense of the world. And they have these little prompts and stimuli. They have a training at work on race that kind of annoys them for a second. They have their kids coming home saying, were the founding fathers all bad people, mommy? Like, this is not their life. This is like these little stimuli. And you have a an opportunity to win the battle for their confused hearts and minds. That's what moderates are. And you do that in many ways, not by coming to them, but by making them want to come to you, making your side more attractive, offering explanations of the world that feel more compelling, and having people in their lives 
you know, their nieces and nephews and cousins and coworkers seem so excited and purposeful because they are in your movement that these kind of unconverted people want to join your movement also. It's the, when Harry's met Sally, Katz delicatessen theory of politics. You want people to be, moderates to be like that old lady in the diner who looks at Meg Ryan and says, I'll have what she's having. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have strong intuitions on this, but it is, it remains unclear to me where our real divisions begin and where our manufactured divisions begin. I mean, part of the problem is that we don't really know, for the most part, the people on the other side. We know their avatars. We know their two-dimensional caricatures that we often encounter online. And to give you an example, you mentioned trans rights, right? So I live in the Deep South. I grew up here. I moved back a few years ago. And you can imagine whatever your assumptions are about the general political climate here, they're pretty close to being correct, I'm sure. But what I find frustrating is how so many people have their minds shaped by the worst imaginable framing of an issue, right? And it almost doesn't really matter what the issue is. Like it, the, the fundamental dynamic is almost always the same. And something like trans rights, this is about as human and complicated as an issue can be. And there's plenty of space for conversations about what is just and right and what to do and, and how to proceed and all that. But what you find often is that people are charged up on the most extreme versions of the opposition, and it destroys the possibility for meaningful engagement. Like if you're someone whose only impression, say, of the pro-trans argument are hysterical videos from libs of TikTok, right, then you're probably not super open to persuasion because you're for the most part, just shadowboxing an unhelpful straw man in your head. And in order to reach that person, you got to deal with that barrier. And that, that is hard. That's really hard. And that is a function of sort of the, the communicative environment we live in today. Well, yes and no. There's two ways I read your story. One is the person you're describing may be too far gone with those libs of TikTok videos and, you know, maybe they're inaccessible. But the other way to read the story you just told is, wow. Libs of TikTok videos clearly sounds like a very effective thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does not seem self-evident to me that we can't do that for inclusion. No, I, I take your point. You're, you're, you're telling me that someone made a, a few videos and now someone is radicalized into some viewpoint that they didn't know about three years ago and an issue no one was talking about three years ago. And wow, that tells me that's a pretty low lift. Let's start making some videos. That sounds like a great idea. Where are our videos? Who's doing that work? And this is where I get so frustrated. I, I quote this line from Anat Shankar Osorio in my book that politics is not solitaire. So the other side is ginning up fear of trans people. You can't like cancel out that fear by being silent about that issue. That concern is in the air now because other people are weaponizing that fear, right? You can't just be race neutral and not talk about race because the other side is bringing up race and bringing up the great replacement theory. So this stuff is in the air and it's in the blood. You have to think about as a democratic party, as a pro-democracy movement, what is your story that explains why those concerns are being ginned up, why those things are being weaponized, and then tells a better story. And, you know, on issues like, for example, the fight for trans kids, I think we sometimes marginalize our own struggles in the way we talk about them. And we fail to muscularly defend both these individuals, but also American ideals. Like, who is fucking braver? You want to talk about bravery, land of the free and home of the brave? I'm sorry, can you find me someone braver than some 14-year-old trans or non-binary kid in the deep south or in Montana in a small town or in Sacramento who is surrounded by family and community that do not accept who they know themselves to be and who persist in that knowledge nonetheless at a risk to their own bodily safety every day, who, who risk the mental health challenges, who risk the bodily harm that statistically we know to be true just because they know who they are. They know what every adult in their life is gaslighting them to thinking they don't know. And they know it and they persist in knowing it and they fight to defend who they are until they can get somewhere safer. Who is braver than that? So what are we defending? Are we just defending some niche human rights justice issues as we allow them to often be defined? Or are we defending the idea of freedom and bravery? And why is the right so afraid of freedom and bravery, by the way? 
Why is the right so afraid of brave young people? What is it about bravery that makes the right so quake in its boots, right? This is the kind of reframing that I'm interested in because I don't know braver people than 14-year-old trans kids. And I don't know people who are defending freedom as militantly as all the women who've risen up since the Dobbs decision. Why is that not called freedom? It seems quite clear to me that they are marshalling a freedom movement of a kind we have not seen in decades. Why do we allow ourselves to be defined as a kind of coalition of niche struggles or marginal struggles, when in fact the reality is this is a struggle for freedom, for bravery, for dignity, and is a mainstream struggle that deserves to evangelically pursue the mainstream middle of American life. Coming up after one more quick break, who are the persuaders on the left? And how are they different from the persuaders on the right? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. So AOC is a huge character in the book for lots of, I think, very good reasons. You spend a lot of time talking to her. And, you know, I've I've always thought of her as someone who was really good at generating attention and energy in the ways we're talking about now. But I've, I've never thought of her as being good at, at persuading people who weren't already predisposed to agree with her. And I know that's a perception she's aware of and very much resist it, which is why I'm asking, do you, do you see her as a kind of model of, of how to do the sort of thing you're talking about doing? in, you know, the year of our Lord, 2023? Look, I think part of what I'm trying to do is redefine what persuasion is in this book and to move away from the notion that persuasion is only clipping your wings to appeal to the middle of the road, right? So I am defining persuasion in this book as being a kind of more multimodal project where being able to get the country to talk about something is part of a persuasive project. Being able to command attention is part of a persuasive project. Yeah. Getting people to constantly be reacting to your moral frame and forgetting their own scripts is part of persuasion. Totally. Now, it may not be the part of persuasion that is about eking out a 5149 Senate passage of something, right? But you're working on a team where someone else is really attentive to that. Joe Biden might be really attentive to that, or someone like Ron Klain might be really attentive to that, and good for them. And they may not be able to do what you do, which is increase the salience of taxing the rich. So look at, look at that issue in particular, right? Joe Biden, to his credit, someone who was often called, for a certain amount of reason, the senator from MBNA, the credit card company, Delaware senator close to financial institutions, not really seen as someone who went up against them, since coming into office, has multiple times proposed serious taxes on the rich, has allowed for quite far-reaching proposals by Ron Wyden and others in the discussions of, around Build Back Better, around a billionaire tax, around taxing unrealized capital gains of super rich people. Like, Joe Biden has entertained a lot of that and has proposed some of it himself and has engaged in some of the kind of rhetoric around billionaires needing to stop, you know, paying zero taxes and all of this, right? In ways that I would say distinguish him from Obama and Clinton. And I don't think you can tell the story of why Joe Biden is doing that without telling the story of what AOC has done and what Bernie Sanders has done and what Elizabeth Warren has done. In other words, I think the kind of persuasion I'm interested in is not soloist, right? It's orchestral. It's about AOC creates a conversational context 
moves public opinion, makes certain things sayable, makes certain things more palatable to discuss, which in turn moves a media discussion, which in turn, you know, alters the consciousness of the kinds of young staffers who go work in the White House and go work in the Senate, which in turn has another effect, which in turn has another effect. And somehow down the line, Joe Biden is interested in taxing billionaires more. That to me is actually how persuasion works. And it does not mean that you need AOC to be trying to clip her wings to be more palatable to billionaires. It means these folks are, whether they realize it or not, working together to soften the ground for certain things, to get notice for certain ideas, to make certain things sayable and certain things unsayable. And if it all works, the person who gets it over the line may not be the person who got it rolling. And I think that's okay. I mean, you end the book with a, a chapter on deep canvassing, which is a phrase a lot of people may not know, but they should, because it's, I think, a pretty good example of what real concrete ground level persuasion looks like. Is part of the solution here, you think we just have to kind of step away from the screen and find ways to engage people in actual physical spaces and talk to them in three dimensions instead of, you know, posting? Yeah, that's probably right. Look, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this conversation might agree with what I'm saying, might not agree with it, but I can imagine a bunch of people saying, look, what do I do? These forces seem quite big, seem indomitable. And deep canvassing is one answer for what you can do. You can literally go sign up to be a deep canvasser. But also I think there's an idea behind deep canvassing, an idea at the heart of it that is an idea you can adopt in your own life and, and apply to your work as a citizen, your work in families, communities, workplaces, where these divisions are present. And the idea of deep canvassing grew out of the struggles of the LGBT movement in California, Los Angeles specifically. When they realized after Prop 8, they kind of lost the fight to defend gay marriage in 2008, the same night Barack Obama won the presidency, a great night in American history that was marred by the fact that this terrible loss happened for gay marriage in California that night. And a lot of these activists in California realized that they were surrounded by people who hated them. It wasn't just, you know, Mitch McConnell and people far away. It was people or people just in the Central Valley. It was like people in LA and people in San Francisco and all kinds of people, you know, had not yet been organized into a view of LGBT folks as equal citizens as full people deserving of full equality. That was the unmistakable conclusion they drew from the data. They realized they were surrounded by not necessarily like profoundly organized bigots, but by just a lot of people who have not yet been introduced to the view of their humanity. And they started going door to door at some of these activists, curious to talk to people about why they hated them. And I wanna be very clear at this moment, no one has to do this. And it was not most gay people who were going door to door trying to find out why people hated them. It was some very small subset of activists who felt strong and healed enough to do that work. And a small number of us need to be willing to engage in some of these really hard, brutal conversations across difference, across the thresholds of doors where there is difference on either side. However, a bunch of these activists did want to do that work, felt strong enough to do it, did do it. And what they found was that a lot of, you know, sure, sure, there's some people who, even at that moment in 2008, had a deeply formed malice toward gay people and had thought through it. And, you know, and that's fine. You're going you're gonna to say bye at the door relatively quickly. But a large number of people they encountered had what we might call strong opinions lightly held. They might express a concern that you know, children are not safe around gay people or a number of noxious views out there. But if you pushed a little bit, those views were actually not that deeply rooted. They were kind of casual verbal retweets of things they'd heard from media, things they'd heard from people. They were not particularly formed views. They weren't really part of a worldview. And that when you started, you couldn't rebut them as an effective way to deal with this. But what you could do was start to plant seeds of cognitive dissonance within them. You could start to make them doubt their own stance by pitting that stance against some other things they also believe. So they, gay people are a danger to young people, okay, but they also have an image of themselves as someone who always fights for the underdog. And that self-image 
of I'm someone who stands up for the little guy could be brought into conflict with I'm someone who thinks gay people are a threat to kids. And that in certain cases, not all, but in more than you'd think, once you put part A of someone against part B of that person, and you have the humanity to recognize that person has a B-side, like every good record, that person has a B-side, you could actually move a lot more people than I think anyone thought possible. And they've done it. It's been political scientists have validated it. They've found that some of these half hour, 45 minute conversations on the door move people as much as years of diffuse social change. It's a remarkable experiment called deep canvassing. You can get trained through something called the People's Action Institute. And I, I highly recommend it as something to learn about at a minimum and, and do if you're one of those people feeling like, what can I do? It's such hard work, but it does actually work. I just think a positive note to end on is something that you emphasize over and over again, which is that the great delusion of this political moment is this belief that people are stuck in cement, that they can't change. But people clearly can change if they're seen and heard and engaged in the right way. And if we give up on that, then we're sort of giving up on the whole damn thing. I think that's right. And I, and I think it's worth, I want to say two things about this. First of all, you know, that famous Hunter Thompson phrase, fear and loathing. I think if you want to understand why the right has taken a neo-fascist turn and why it's doing as well as it is, given what it's peddling, you have to understand there's a remarkable amount of fear and loathing running through the bloodstream of this society. And it is creating the context in which a DeSantis or a Trump can do what they're doing. Without that context, they would be kind of naked and alone. However, fear and loathing are not the same thing. This is a society with a lot of fear and loathing, essentially towards the kind of multiracial, egalitarian, gender-affirming, pluralist society we are becoming. But fear the fear about that future and the loathing of that future are different. And what I mean by that is the loathing is conscious and thoughtful and organized. And I think it's a pretty small minority of Americans and it's probably immovable, right? So those may be the folks where it's correct to say, I'm not gonna waste my breath on that person. But I think there's a much larger group of people in the coalition of fear and loathing who are dominated by fear rather than loathing. And that, I think, is sometimes hard for those of us on the left to hear because it, it seems to excuse it. Or, but I, I think we got to sidestep that. It's not about excusing. It's not, it's not a moral thing. It's just the reality is a lot of people are afraid of a future that feels different to them, that feel, where it feels less clear how they're going to fit in, that feels full of new things that make them feel irrelevant or displaced, so they can't quite keep up. I know this is some of the older people in my life, the way they feel about their computer. For me, my computer is like a source of empowerment, right? And I feel like every year I'm able to like do new things that I couldn't do before and become like more powerful through the use of this tool. But people of my parents' generation, they often experience their technology as like a floodwater rising in their house. And like by this time next year, like it might be taller than them. And it's just like this thing they can't keep up with that's like slowly making them irrelevant. Well, I think a lot of Americans, starting with white people, starting with men, starting with more rural folks, but not only those groups, experience the kind of future that I want to live in, a future of multiracial democracy, of pluralism, of dignity and justice for LGBT folks and all folks, disabled folks, experience that for certain reasons as a scary threat to who they know themselves to be. They wonder how they'll fit. They wonder who they'll be in that new reality. That fear may present similarly to loathing, but it is in some ways pre-loathing. It is pre, it has not yet been organized either way. And the right sees that fear and is trying to organize it into loathing. And I think the left needs to see that fear and organize it into love and not view it as congealed, as a fait accompli, as something that cannot be won over. That fear is a normal transitional fact of a society that, yes, is actually
actually going through a whole bunch of change in redefining our relations to each other, redefining the ideas of the country. We are trying to do that. And the idea that we wouldn't have some sympathy for the fact that there's going to be some people who are like, ah, this seems like a lot. It is precisely at that moment that we have to have a better story to tell them than the other side does. We have to mercifully, lovingly, but also clearly bring them in into our cause. We have to have patience when people don't get it and say the wrong thing, while at the same time defending the right of others in our movement to not be degraded constantly. It's a very, very tough balancing act we have, but I think it is a balancing act in defense of a future that's gonna be a lot of fun and that's gonna be a lot more just than frankly most human communities that have ever existed who were, let's be honest, pretty awful to all kinds of people who didn't meet the, qualifications of normal. We are trying to build something actually that is quite radical and quite cool in the history of the world. And I think it's time we give ourselves a pat on the back. Remember that this neo-fascist movement are kind of barnacles on the hull of our progress. And we got to kind of boat on. I could not agree more. And this is a point I've heard you make elsewhere, that we have just had a ton of cultural and technological and political change in an astonishingly brief window of time, and that has created a vacuum that has been filled by the political right, which has been very good at appealing to the disorientation that results from all of that change. And the answer for the left cannot be to hold all of these people in contempt. That is just a political dead end. I think your word disorientation is so good there. I, I haven't been using that, and I, I should. And then think about, so someone's disoriented. It is a word about navigation. It's a word about knowing where you're going. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The remedy for disorientation is not shame. It's not rebuttal. It's orientation. Let's orient them. Let's tell them where they can go. Let's give them a roadmap. And I think that is the pro-democracy movement worth its salt in this moment, is a movement that would concern itself with orienting legions of disoriented Americans. And I think that's as good a, a way as any, as good a marching order as any. Once again, the book is called The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. It really is a fantastic book and I cannot recommend it enough. Anand Girdardis, I am so glad we had a chance to do this. Thanks for coming in, man. Thank you so much for having me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. All right, there was a ton to unpack in that conversation. I'd love to know what resonated with you, what you disagreed with. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, and of course you did, Please share it with all your friends on the socials. All that stuff really helps. Truly. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.